Today's episode is with Paul Rabel. Paul played professional lacrosse for more than a decade and is considered by many to be the best lacrosse player of all time. But Paul also co-founded the Premier Lacrosse League with his brother Mike in 2018. Backed by some of the biggest players in venture capital today, the Premier Lacrosse League has the opportunity to become the next major U.S. professional sports league. In this conversation, we discuss Paul's experience as a professional athlete, how establishing a personal brand changed his life, the challenges in building a pro sports league, why the PLL can be a multi-billion dollar enterprise, and more. I learned a lot during this conversation, and I hope you enjoy it too. Today's episode is brought to you by Whoop, the personalized digital fitness and health coach. Monitor your recovery, sleep, training, and health with personalized recommendations and coaching feedback with Whoop. Train smarter, recover faster, sleep better, and now feel healthier with Whoop and their all-new Whoop 4.0, the latest, most advanced fitness wearable on the market. The all-new 4.0 is smaller, smarter, and designed with new biometric tracking, including skin temperature, blood oxygen, and more. The device also features an all-new smart alarm, designed to wake you up feeling refreshed and ready to take on the day. Plus, it was designed with their new Anywhere technology, so you can wear it with their new Whoop Body Sensor Enhanced Technical Garments, boxers, shorts, compression tops, leggings, and more. Just remove the band from the device and slide it into your garment of choice, and you're discreetly tracking your daily activity with Whoop. I've been wearing Whoop for over a year now, and it's drastically improved the way I approach fitness and think about my recovery. Not only is the device comfortable to wear, the app packs a ton of health information into a simple display that's easy to understand. Get the all-new waterproof device for free when you sign up for Whoop 4.0 membership. For any members, if you have six months left on your membership, you can upgrade now and get the 4.0 for free. But here's the best part. Whoop is offering 15% off when you use code Joe at checkout. Go to Whoop, W-H-O-O-P dot com and enter Joe, J-O-E, at checkout to save 15%. Next up is Public Rec. Are you looking to upgrade your baggy sweats? It's time to check out Public Rec. Their best-selling, all-day, everyday pant is the perfect combination of indoor comfort and outdoor style. Myself, along with thousands of others, are wearing these, and trust me, they live up to the height. Finally, a more stylish alternative to sweatpants that are way more comfortable than jeans. Now, your favorite lounge pants can also be your go-tos for work, happy hour, and the gym. After a year at home, they're definitely the pants you need, now that you need pants. Public Rec rarely discounts, but right now, they have an exclusive offer just for my listeners. Go to publicrec.com and use promo code HUDDLE, H-U-D-D-L-E, to receive 10% off. This episode is also sponsored by CoinCloud. Did you know you don't need a bank account to buy crypto? CoinCloud makes it easy to buy or sell Bitcoin and 30 plus other digital assets with their digital currency machines. It's the most convenient way to make a transaction. With thousands of machines across the country, there's no need to connect your bank account or wait in lines. Plus, they offer live, 24-7, US-based customer support. Simply put, CoinCloud wants to make it easy for you to get involved in crypto. Get $50 off in free Bitcoin when you buy $200 or more at any CoinCloud machine and use the promo code Joe. You heard that right. That's free Bitcoin. For details, go to coin.cloud slash Joe. That's coin.cloud slash Joe. And don't forget to use promo code Joe for free Bitcoin. All right, Paul, thank you for doing this. I'm pumped to have you on today. I have a lot of questions. Uh, I want to talk about your background, the PLL, everything. But I was literally just thinking before we came on about how to introduce you, right, and how to, how to title you. And I was like, he's an athlete, obviously, best lacrosse player of all time. Uh, he's an entrepreneur building the PLL, uh, creator, unbelievable podcast. You create content online, and you're an investor, right? You've, you've invested in businesses. So I figured I would just ask you, uh, when someone you meet for the first time, how do you introduce right. yourself? It, you know, it, it's, uh, it's something that I've thought about before. I was listening to 
a podcast, interestingly enough, where Tim Ferriss was asking Debbie Milliman the same thing. And I've like idolized Debbie Milliman and what she's done as a designer and writer and just like thought leader, thought provoker. And she struggled with it. Uh, but she did say, she gave one word as advice. She says, call yourself an executive. It's, it's like catch all. Um, but, but I would say like specifically is depending on the audience and who I'm talking to and, and uh, professional athlete tended, tend to find itself leading first. Um, and that's no longer. So I think it's, uh, you know, co-founder. Executive. Of the yeah, executive. Yeah. Executive. I like it. It's not a, <laughs> it's not a bad problem to have. Uh, which is a which is a good thing, obviously. But all it right. can be problematic though to to that though, Joe, because if you, if you do if you do too much, um, you know you're you're never really going to get the most out of anything, and that is where I've struggled. I, I think I, I I'm a pretty good generalist, um, and you know I I take pride in in vision and strategy, but you know I'm I'm weaker in operation and execution on the business side and happens to be my brother, who's my co-founder and CEO of the PLS mega strengths. So we work well together in that capacity. I think I executed on field as an athlete, but uh, certainly been mindful of, of time and, and time share across different interests. So that, that's a good point, I guess, right? When you were playing, and for the people who are listening to this that may not know, uh, you were a lacrosse player first and foremost before you became the co-founder of the PLL, which was a uh, competitive lacrosse league against the MLL at first, and then we'll get into kind of how you guys merged and stuff. But when you were a player and still had responsibilities as an executive, how did that work? Were you just leaning on your, your, your teammates on the business side while you took care of stuff on the field, or did you find that you struggled to maintain the differences? Well, the first two years I struggled more than the last one. The last one I knew, my brother knew, was going to be my final season um, and carved out more time in my calendar to try to focus on being as much of a professional athlete as I could. So my roles and responsibilities, especially preseason through season, uh, were limited. But going back to 2017, while we were building the league in stealth and then announced in October of 2018, through the pandemic heavy period of 2020, uh, you know, you're talking 80 hour weeks and uh, probably 20 of them dedicated to being an athlete. So, uh, so I think that that, uh, that that was a struggle and my body felt it. Uh, I think that my skill uh, plateaued in a way. And, and in sports, you always have to keep improving. Um, but I was spending, you know, most of, if not all of my time, even when I was in the gym or out back shooting, still thinking about the business. And that, that is what I think plagues in a lot of cases, but also makes entrepreneurs successful is that they never shut off. And I could be watching, you know, last season's NFL playoff game simulcasted on Nickelodeon and just immediately thinking about, you know, augmented reality integration into next season's broadcast. Uh, and it's just part of how I'm wired. It's how Mike's wired too. Everything that we touch or see, is that applied currently to the PL? Can it be? Um, and, and that, again, that can also plague you over time because you, uh, you don't really shut off. I was just going to say, uh, that's a perfect example because 
my girlfriend makes fun of me all the time. She literally laughs because we'll be sitting there and it'll be 10 o'clock, whatever at night. And we're, we're just hanging out. And she'll be like, what are you thinking about? And I'll name something about business that I could be doing better or something I could be doing more. And it's like, in one regard, it's good, right? Because you're always thinking and you're always trying to make things better and create. But at the other time, it's like, you need a little bit of just shut off time and, and to get your priorities straight. So we laugh about it, but uh, it, it's both good and bad, I guess, in some cases. But this yeah. brings me back to a good point. I want to start uh, in 2008. So you're the number one draft pick. You spent uh, your time playing college lacrosse at Johns Hopkins. Uh, incredible player, won multiple national championships, I believe at least. Uh, and you are the number one overall pick in professional lacrosse, major league lacrosse. You've been public about this. I've read online that you said your wage for that year was $6,000, right? So yeah. can you just talk through uh, what that was like? So for most people that don't know, you got $6,000. Everyone had a second job. Right. So you were, I think you were doing investment sales. Other people were, uh, firefighters, et cetera, policemen kind of doing these second jobs, teachers, uh, and making a living while playing lacrosse on the weekends. Did you know that this is what you were going into when you started to do it? And how tough was it? Yeah, it was like the NFL in the fifties and sixties. Um, and, uh, it was really tough. Uh, so, and I knew that's what I was getting into. Uh, and that's why I got a job out of school, uh, in an, with an investment sales team in real estate. And I needed to create income because, you know, there was no other way of going about, you know, entering my adult life without being able to support myself from a, from a cost standpoint. I think what it, what it led into and something that we've been addressing at the PLL for quite some time is the level of investment that a professional lacrosse player will put into it, knowing that it's not their prime earning, um, you know, their, their prime earning wage. And if we could shift that, which was a lot of the strategy when launching the PLL, that we'd get a product as a result that the lacrosse world and sports fans that have watched lacrosse have never seen. Um, so I was right at that crossroads where, damn, I got drafted number one overall. That was exciting. I was getting paid $6,000 to play for that season. I had a job in commercial real estate where I was getting paid, you know, 4x, 5x, what that what that was for an entry level position, uh, but I kept coming back to how important lacrosse was to me organic organically. It was it was and still to this day is my favorite thing to do. Um, and then with the way that I'm wired around performance, well, I wanted to be the best, and so you know I was able to sidestep the wage profile and say, well, if I were getting paid six hundred thousand dollars. What would I be doing? Would be practicing every day, and um, and so I stepped away from my job in real estate. I had it for about eight months, um, but my kind of like curiosity around the business of sport began to light on fire. And in two thousand eight, at that time, was when Facebook actually launched their athlete and fan pages. So what that did was unlocked what at the time was a subjective cap of five thousand friends for a Facebook profile. And I remember having about 35,000 pending because they had just opened up Facebook to high schoolers who wanted to be my friend. I couldn't accept them. Um, so then I launched a fan page and I got to 50,000 fans overnight. So it told me two things. One is that uh, there's a big appetite for professional lacrosse. Um, and then two is that this new thing called social media might be a way to, to generate some additional income, which was the path that I took at that time playing in major league lacrosse for 10 years my total wage never eclipsed $16,000 for the season. Um, and, uh, but my sponsorship profile was uh, high six figures. Uh, 
So I was able to do that. I started a camp business and other things that uh, it led me to the title that Bloomberg gave as uh, lacrosse's first million dollar man. Um, and I was chipping away, chipping away, chipping away. Um, and I'll shut up so you can continue the interview. But I, uh, you know, a lot of those learnings uh, taught me uh, the business of professional sports. Oh man, you keep going as much as you want. <laughs> uh, I, I I'm fascinated by it, right? Because I remember I was younger at the time, but one of the things I remember vividly was that you were, uh, you really took advantage of the social media side of things, right? And I don't know, maybe you can answer this towards the end of the, your, uh, time with the MLL 10 years later, was there anyone that was still making, uh, were you the only person that was doing it for a living full-time making sponsorship money or were there other people doing something similar? There were other guys. There were a lot more guys that were uh, chartering down that path. And, you know, the, the challenging thing about the sponsorship business is that, you know, you have your endemic deals and that's where the top players and their disciplines get paid typically the most. Then the non-endemic deals come and that's what can really unlock earning potential for an athlete. Non-endemic is, is anything unrelated to your sport. So it could be financial, it could be hospitality, it could be travel. Um, food and bev in a lot of cases, if, it, if it's not, you know, Gatorade, which uh, I think would be endemic. Um, so the, the tricky part is when you get into, when you get into the world of non-endemic, it, it's no longer about like, oh, this guy or this girl is the best at what they do. Cause Amex isn't cutting a deal with every one of the best players in every discipline. You then compete against the best at what they do for that one, maybe two, uh, sponsorship opportunities with a non-endemic. So for me to win out at Amex, I had to be LeBron James, Peyton Manning, Tom Brady, Abby Wambach, uh, Sue Bird, Megan Rapino, And all of that was like, you know, out of my reach. Um, so, you know, there were things that I thought a lot about when it came to sponsorship and earning potential. And there's, there are things that a lot of athletes don't know going into it of actually how hard that business is. Um, you've got to cut out a niche for yourself. You've got to deliver to the brand and you've got to have a unique uh, proposition that's different to other athletes who are the top at their game. Yeah. And it's, uh, it, it comes and it goes, right? So there's, there's ebbs and flows to it from a sponsorship money standpoint. And you have to keep, you know, not only uh, converting on sales and, and sponsorships and all that kind of stuff, but you have to uh, be growing your profile, which I think is, is difficult also. Uh, but okay. So let's go through 2008 to uh, 10 years later, 2016, 2017, 2018 range. MLL was the major professional league here in, in North America, uh, outdoor-wise. You played for them for a decade. You grew frustrated at some point, right? So there was, uh, I believe, you know, the sport was growing here uh, domestically. More people were interested in it. More people were playing. Attendance was was trending upward, I think, in some kind of capacity. Uh, maybe record was 10, 12, 13,000 people at a game but the wages weren't picking up, right? So you mentioned the number one player when you got drafted uh, $6,000 for the season, you never made more than $16,000 in a year. So talk me through what you think went wrong, why this league wasn't growing uh, and why ultimately you ended up trying to make a difference. Yeah, well, I, I think that philosophically, the biggest difference was that uh, the pro game was positioned as one that would benefit from the continued growth at the ground level all the way through and ground being youth all the way through high school, college, and then pro would benefit. There's not a case study in North American pro sports history that suggests that that happens. 
Um, and I think where, where ownership groups and professional leagues have positioned themselves as beachfront water property, that as a market continues to populate, that real estate will get more expensive, never happens. Um, so if you look at the NFL, if you look even at the PGA, if you look at the NBA, Major League Baseball, uh, all of those sports were you know, benefited from sophisticated, intentional uh, professional operators and owners. Um, and so my takeaway and kind of I watch it is it's like professional lacrosse at the time um, was tightly wound by a lean PL that just wanted to hover around as, as minimal of losses as possible year over year until at some point lacrosse continued to catch on and, uh, and they were able to operate profitably. Uh, it's just the wrong model. And so, uh, you know, as a result, they weren't getting uh, the appropriate investment and resourcing into the marketing, the distribution of the product into the marketing and distribution and, and public relations of the players, um, even into like resourcing ticket sales and sponsorship sales teams. Uh, so it was a lean business and you can't be lean in sports. Yep. Yeah. So you get, uh, you understand kind of your feet on the ground that things could be better potentially, right? So I don't think most people know the other side of this, which is, uh, to the best of my knowledge, and I'll let you speak on it, is before you and your brother Mike went out and created the PLL, you raised money and you did all this stuff and launched it, uh, I believe you went to the MLL, right? And said, hey, look, these are some things I think we could be doing differently. And then ultimately you actually presented an offer to buy them. One, is that yeah. correct? And then two, just walk me through that conversation. Yeah, it's absolutely correct. Um, it, it was it would have been a much uh, more uh, cohesive path to have bought versus built, um, and we had overhead capital at the time, um, and I think some significant uh, and substantial sports ownership groups interested in, you know, aligning with Mike and my vision to purchase MLL, and um, we had a, a number of conversations probably over the course of eighteen months, and. We just couldn't get to a place where we were agreeing essentially on valuation methodology, less, less even getting close to valuation. Um, and, uh, and then we explored other forms of M&A, uh, but just couldn't get any momentum. So what we decided to do was take on the path of building the league and uh, from scratch. And that required um, a different type of investment, a different type of investor. Uh, long-term patient capital and a lot of conversations with every shareholder and every stakeholder um, from new players to network partners, um, to sponsorships, um, and, and certainly to the onboarding of our colleagues who are now working with us at the PLL. Um, building from scratch is, is, a, is a much different conversation um, than taking over the existing regime. Um, we revisited the conversations with MLL um, after year one and then after year two, which I think the pandemic in many industries and in certainly many cases had just really functioned as an accelerator of outcomes that uh, would likely happen. In this case, it was it was the merging of, of both leagues and now operations uh, run under the PLL. All right. So I got a couple questions. <laughs> one, okay. when you went to the MLL, were they shocked at first? Yeah, I mean, there are always conversations that are happening. And, um, you know, this had actually been attempted previously. So there was a, a group called LXM, and they had launched a, a competitive property to uh, Major League Lacrosse. 
And that was probably like six years ago and seven years ago, maybe. And it ended up, you know, losing out to MLL. Um, and I think that they uh, were unfortunately kind of lacking on capital. Um, and then, you know, running a pro sports league, especially a single entity league is, is super challenging um, from venues to game day ops to, you know, player and fan experience. So I think because that happened, I bring that up is MLO ownership group. They knew we were building, but they were also hedging it toward us not being able to get out of the gates and or not being able to compete because this is a lot more difficult than uh, I think they thought we believed it was. Um, so I say all that, Joe, because like there wasn't as much of a pushback as, as I anticipated, as Mike had anticipated when we did begin conversations with players, when they knew we were having conversations with players because they were out of their contract window. Um, and then when the first announcement came on October 22nd, 2018 for 2019 season, I still think they thought deep down that we weren't going to get out. Yep. Um, so that, that, that's how I reflect on it because it, there wasn't much pushback. Okay. So on the second side of that, which is, uh, raising money, there's a lot of institutional money, whether it's private equity money, VC money, whatever coming into sports. Now, uh, it's kind of like the hot topic. Everyone wants to, to discuss how, uh, VCs and private equity funds are trying to buy sports teams and invest in all this stuff. It wasn't as popular back then. And right. you obviously know this better than anyone. It's really freaking hard to build a sports league from scratch, obviously. What was the response when you went to these investors and started asking for money to build this? Well, uh, it was a, it was a challenging and, and very like surgical moment for Mike and myself. So this is Mike's strong suit. Mike knows how to structure companies, operate them and, and drive performance. Um, so we were meticulous around the process as uh, the co-founders and, and largest shareholders of the business and uh, meticulous around the capital that was required, the stages of which we were looking to raise capital and the valuations that we were projecting, uh, especially for a sports league, which all this private equity is in now because these are enterprise businesses. And in a lot of cases, they're trading on eight to 10 times revenue. Um, and the year-over-year -year growth in different business units inside of sports is massive right now, whether it's new technology or sports betting, NFTs, tokens, and, and those are all new. And you look at the media attached to sports, sponsorship attached to sports, tickets, which was, was the original revenue driver of Major League Baseball in the 1900s. So these are like pretty big businesses that require their own TLC, um, and in a lot of cases, their own P&Ls. So it was, it was an enormous task to build out the pro forma, which Mike led. Um, and then we went to the investors and a lot of them were really excited about the prospectus, but knew how gigantic of a task it was. So we actually staged out uh, our first capital infusion um, in two ways. And the first was like, all right, guys, we believe in this vision and we think we believe in you as operators. It's going to take a lot of grit. You guys know that, but it actually might take more than you think. Um, so we're going to stage this and let you guys go and prove yourself, sign all these players, get a network deal and leads on sponsors. And then we'll, and then we'll, uh, allocate the rest of the capital. And I think that was the right thing for them to do, right? We, we want to be in business with investors who are strategic for us. We're helping us operate. We're creating introductions, uh, and providing a lot of, you know, strategic insight. Um, and we also, you know, don't want to take on a blank check. I don't think there's like a lot of case study history in that being 
uh, a successful or proper way to go. Um, so when you when you're taking on a business uh, of this size and and complexity, um, I think having being a very you know rigorous fundraising team um, was the right path. Yeah. So you guys start out, you get the money, uh, you get some investors behind you, big name people, right? The Rain Group, uh, the Churning Group, Joe Tai, Joe Tsai, uh, et cetera. Was the idea just that we can pay these players more and we can really create a system where they're doing this full time, the product improves, we distribute it in better ways. So to the best of my knowledge, the average salary was around $10,000 in the MLL, right? And you guys came out the gate and you said, we're going to pay an average salary of $35,000 plus health benefits, plus equity in a league. That's obviously uh, much more enticing to the yeah. average lacrosse player, right? So just walk me through the idea uh, up to launch of how you were going to start recruiting players away. Yeah, so I, I, there were two things, right? It was it was the compensation package that we put in front of them, which was you know on average four x what they were getting from a wage standpoint, tacking on annual health care, which which is actually a bigger piece than people realize because we talked about my career, right? Taking the leap of faith with a six thousand dollar rookie wage, starting a social media handle, and trying to go after sponsorship dollars. In doing so. You know, I wasn't surviving on my parents' healthcare, so I was taking on my own healthcare. And and privatized healthcare in this country is, is difficult to navigate. So if you got hurt take- when, real quick, if you got hurt when you were in the MLL, say you went on a weekend, right, and you play the game and you get hurt, uh, what happens? So we were W two'd, so we would fall under workers' comp in that specific market. But anything outside of that was on me. Okay. Um, additionally, uh, like I was running uh, my own camping clinic business, and so I would know, figure out insurance related to the corporate nature of doing so, and then my own personal liability insurance. Um, So it is complex, especially for athletes that are looking to, you know, build income away from game day. So offering that to our players was a big piece. And that was something that we pulled through polling them. Uh, And then the third, I think most important and stands out to any other team sports league in North America is we offer equity to our players. Um, And and that comes in the form of stock options. Um, There were stock options on signing of contracts, and then there are stock options now for players on games played. Um, And that was going back to that comment I made about NFL in the 50s and 60s is, man, these guys drove so much value in that era. And their wage profile wasn't like it is today by any stretch. But what if they had equity in those teams with the valuations that teams are getting now in the billions of dollars? Um, that feels like a fair trade. Um, so that's how we thought about the compensation package. The other piece was what we were bringing to the table. So Major League Lacrosse didn't have a distribution deal. And if you're in the business of pro sports, uh, I don't care who you are. And, and some of the best athletes in the world are, are also some of the most uh, humble people. Um, we're in the show business. And the thing that I can also say to this is there's a conversation about how important media is and how how valuable content is. People say, well, content is king. Not if you can't see it. Distribution's king. You can have a great product, a fantastic professional lacrosse game, and if it doesn't get distributed, no one knows except the people that were there. So uh, our ability to create a, a network deal with NBC Go with that in hand to players. Also say, hey, we're going to be playing at these MLS venues. We're going to be playing at NFL venues. And we're going to roll out a red carpet. And you're going to be treated like a pro. You're going to travel like a pro. You're going to stay at nice hotels. And you know, game day is going to be covered by our owned and operated production house and our network partner. Um, this now feels different. And so pro athletes 
they want to they want to feel like a pro athlete. And when they do, you're going to see pro athlete results on field. Uh, and that was a big part of it, uh, Joe, to be honest. Like there was a comp package that we believed in and loved. But there was like for the first time, let's roll out a, re- a red carpet in professional lacrosse. Yeah, and it's interesting because uh, it's funny to say and think of it in this context, but I get asked all the time about content specifically, right? Building a newsletter, building a podcast, building a Twitter following, building whatever it might be. Uh, and I always joke, and you said it perfectly, which is you, you have to have both things. You can't just have good content, and no distribution, and you can't have uh, uh, distribution and bad content. It's got to be a, a, a mixture of both. And I've seen you guys, and one of the things I think you guys do really, really well is you're taking photos of the guys getting off the bus before the game. There's highlight videos going out on Twitter and YouTube, et cetera. And I know you guys are proud of this stuff because you're posting consistently the impressions you're getting, the views you're getting, and all this stuff, and the follower growth. And these are things that you're now seeing all the bigger leagues and other leagues catch on to, right? So is this just stuff that you learned early on from, hey, I need to go make a living playing lacrosse. Like, this is a cool way to do it, and this is good distribution on a multi-channel network. And then you thought, hey, why don't we do this with the league? Yeah, I mean, there's so much to unpack here. Um, so, you know, social media as a whole is its own business, and there's direct ties to revenue based on audience size, but more importantly, audience engagement level. Um, the other side of social, when it comes to a major property like a sports league, is it can be equated to the bottom of the funnel uh, for for acquisition. And when you think about acquisition on media, what what we knew existed in a lot of the legacy media deals is blackout periods. And those blackout periods since the evolution of social media have also included such. So some teams and leagues, for example, may not be able to post any game day highlights until the next day, or they're capped at like a minute of video highlights that can't be pulled from the broadcast. So the traditionalists, I believe, looked at social media as an arbitrage to viewership. Uh, we viewed it as an acquisition tool to viewership to linear and then subscriptions to streaming. And that was a lot of the conversation we brought to the table with our network partner in NBC is trust us here. They also knew there was something there, but like, let's build this together. The other side of it is, you know, brands are looking for more and more integration across the entire ecosystem. Brands used to come in and just spend on the game day experience, activation in stadium, PA call-outs, LED boards, and then it got integrated into the broadcast. And then from the broadcast, it used to be spots and dots, which is your ads, and now it's uh, in-game features. So the Vineyard Vines power play of the game, um, as example. Now it's like, okay, we also want to be involved during the week on social media. So what does it cost to be a part of the PLLs? social content uh, map each week and then their teams and now it's gotten even more detailed and say hey can we get access to the player's social media because that's like as close to the bottom of the funnel and engagement with the audience as possible um, and each of those kind of layers that i just mapped out they are mutually exclusive of each other in the legacy leagues we built the league such that we actually had a turnkey solution and that if you wanted to come in as a league partner with the PLL, you could get access to the venue and our fans on site. You get access through the broadcast and our partnership with NBC. You get access to the league team accounts and we'll integrate our players. Um, and, and we do that by working with them to produce content and then push it out through their social channels. So that is, um, 
that's new age sports marketing and integration of partners into the entire ecosystem. And I'm assuming the players are seeing a massive benefit from this also on their own social accounts. Yeah, I, I, we believe so. I, I think that, uh, you know, players are, are right at the intersection of engagement between uh, what happens on the live game all the way through uh, the next week. And those storylines that uh, a league can create around those players uh, is one thing. And then what we're seeing the acceleration happen is when players take it into their own hands and build content around uh, their organic use of the app and what they do day to day. So I guess one question off of that would be uh, when, when you were playing for the MLL uh, early on in your career and even towards the later stage of it, there was very few players that were playing lacrosse as their full-time job. A few, but not the majority. Is it the majority now? It's it's probably close to seventy percent of our guys are are full time lacrosse, and I think in the next three years it'll be a hundred percent. And the reason why is like now it's um, now it's about you, you know it's all it's almost like Darwinism at this stage that once you eclipse that fifty percent uh, strongest survive these guys are practicing every day they have trainers they have nutritionists they have uh, sports psychologists. Once you have that, if you don't, you can't compete. Yep. Um, and so you figure out a way. And some guys are figuring out a way by, you know, creating additional income inside the sport. So they're leaning into their social, they're, they're building sponsorship revenue. They're also starting their own camp and clinic business. They may be working with a, a lacrosse endemic partner on the side. Uh, so they're getting creative. But the main thing is the main thing. And right now that's, that's being the best lacrosse player in the world. Um, and, and kind of like rising tides, lifting all boats there. Amazing. Amazing. Cause, uh, I'm sure as everyone knows when the, when the product is really good and the talent level improves, that always helps. So walk me through the merger. Uh, you guys played for a few seasons. You got the deal with NBC. Uh, you probably won't say it. So I'll say it for you. You guys were winning in the battle of professional lacrosse. Uh, you guys ended up merging at the end of this year, uh, at the end of the COVID year with the MLL to create one unified outdoor lacrosse league here in North America. Walk me through that conversation and how that happened. Yeah. Well, you know, we, like I said, we had, we had met after our inaugural season uh, about merging. And then in 2020, you know, every league in North America was kind of trying to lean in and figure out uh, how to educate ourselves around infectious disease uh, the appropriate way to, if we were able to have a COVID safe uh, bubble or a tournament, because we all knew we were going to have truncated seasons, if and in best case scenario that was going to happen, um, you know, we we leaned into uh, you know public resourcing. So the White House had their, uh, a sports COVID committee, and then we launched our own uh, external medical uh, COVID advisory group. Um, so. I remember speaking with the NBA, speaking with MLS, speaking with the WNBA, uh, NASCAR, the PGA Tour, and we were all comparing notes. Um, MLL really wasn't in those conversations, but they had reached out on a couple of occasions to share. And um, you know, kind of what happened essentially was they uh, they made an attempt at um, having a a bubble tournament, and it was unsuccessful. And I think at that stage, with the momentum that we were carrying with the PLL. Um, and their, their league had contracted three teams since we had launched, uh, we got back on the phone and decided, uh, Hey, uh, it is 
a sport that's better together. Um, so what would that look like such that you all can feel happy about this merger and be a part of, um, you know, the uh, professional lacrosse into the future? And, and honestly, Joe, it probably took like a, a month to get there. And, um, you know, my, my, again, my, my call out earlier around uh, the pandemic being an accelerator for a lot of businesses, I think in lacrosse, it accelerated to a place of cohesion. Gotcha. And I won't ask you uh, to give me anything that isn't public or whatnot, but now that you're together, right, as one unified league, how big can this be? Well, I, like I've, I've told uh, a few people that have asked me this publicly, um, you know, I, I think we can be the next UFC. I think we can be the next F1. Um, certainly from a, from a business roadmap standpoint, we're on that path. We're actually on an accelerated path. We've only been playing for three years and our year year growth from viewership to uh, ticket sales to sponsorship overall revenue um, is pretty substantial. Um, and where we are sitting in professional sports with you know, a very dynamic media environment, sports betting in the US, uh, new technology, it's created an opportunity for us to move and grow faster than the UFC did because they were building in the linear age. Um, so it really has nothing to do with us as operators versus operators in the past. Um, you know, frankly, when we were sitting down with the rain group, when we were raising money, uh, as, as sound as I think our presentation materials were, uh, they wouldn't have invested in this 10 years ago. So it's the opportunity that new media and technology has brought to the table that has given us this accelerated path. And then there's like the, the psychology of the sports fan, which is, I think the biggest, moat around tier three or tier two sports leagues becoming tier one. If you can convince the hundred million casual sports fans in the U.S. that you're must watch, then the sky is the limit. Um, we're chipping away at that. But what we're sitting on top of is 11 and a half million diehard lacrosse fans and two and a half million diehard lacrosse players in the U.S. And that's a healthy and very attractive business. Yeah, and I, uh, I I think people often forget the UFCs were six to ten billion somewhere in between there now. But at one point, uh, they were calling it you know cage fighting, and they wouldn't allow it on TV and all this stuff. So they they've certainly come a long way. But you talk about the eleven and a half uh, fans of lacrosse and two and a half million players. Part of it is increasing that number, right? Part of it is getting more people to play the sport uh, on a foundational level and increasing their interest in it. How do you guys do that? So it's, it's an interesting question, Joe, because I'll go back to like your, your first question around MLL and like why it, why it struggled and why it didn't work is there is this uh, historical tie in the success of professional sports to number of participants. And uh, my question back to that is the NFL and the UFC don't look at participants and these are, you know, multi-billion dollar businesses. They are entertainment properties. They look at growth of fans, right? There have been reports that 55% of fans of the NFL are women. And for another conversation, you know, women don't have the ability to play contact football at large at the NCAA level and then even um, you know, in the NFL. So um, I think about it as participant growth is really valuable and obviously can be super helpful to our sport. But professionally, you need to think about growing the fan base, whether they play or not. 
And that's what the UFC did. It's what F1's doing. Um, Netflix kind of as, uh, has been a big part of that through Drive to Survive. And I think that, you know, even scripted shows like Queen's Gambit, um, you know, drive significant growth to the chess market um, back in 2019 and 2020. Um, so how are we creating more fandom of lacrosse? And, and that's through, I think, great gameplay and a live product, but also storytelling of our players and creating like aspiration around it. Um, so that's how I think about it at the biggest level. And then, you know, again, not to ignore year over year growth because lacrosse happens to be over the last 15 years, uh, the fastest growing sport from a participation standpoint at the team sport level um, year over year. And, uh, and so, you know, I, I, I heard this from Adam Silver once and it was brilliant where he was, you know, referred to uh, building basketball fans uh, like uh, uh, local dealerships do uh, in converging in converting um, car purchases is if you can get someone to test drive a car, there's some like 80% more likely to buy your vehicle. So he tries to get as many basketballs into hands of the general population as possible. Uh, and they will more likely become an NBA fan. So certainly participation is a huge factor. Um, but you shouldn't build your business on that alone. Gotcha. I like that theory. I never heard that about the basketballs in hands. That's good. Uh, so you talked about a couple examples real quick that I just want to touch on, which is Formula One and Netflix. Uh, it's one of the fastest growing sports leagues now here in North America because of it from a, uh, a viewership standpoint. Queen's Gamut, if you look at the stats when it comes to chess boards, you're absolutely right. They blew up after that. Even Squid Game, uh, bands yeah. were like 7,000% sales up, right? So uh, the, the the content side of this is just crazy how much it can create an inflection point. Is the PLL going to do anything like that? Well, I hope so. Um, it's something that we do uh, right now, actually, uh, unbeknownst to a lot of people, is our production house, which is about 25 members uh, full-time, coordinating producers to graphic designer, audio engineers, producer, editors, social media coordinators, um, and, uh, and our director of content. And that in-house allows us to create vignettes and features and shoulder programs uh, to support the broadcast. So whether it's a halftime show, pregame, postgame, and even commercial inventory we've done and have the capability to do. Um, we have been able to shoot a doc. We have been able to uh, create certain treatments that are in market right now. Um, what I'm looking to resource and continue to build at the PLL is, is a more enhanced and robust development team. Uh, but I know that original programming and entertainment will disproportionately benefit the sports trajectory. Um, and it doesn't have to be you know, our version of hard knocks, which I give that as an example, because that is directly tied to the NFL. They take an NFL team during the preseason, they follow them. I think that a good show about lacrosse will have the same impact, whether it's about a PLL team or not. Gotcha. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, before I let you go, I just want to touch on roles and responsibilities now. So you, uh, as we're speaking, you transitioned from a player, you retired as a player uh, in September of this year. And you were the CMO uh, at the profession, at the Premier Lacrosse League for the last few years, and now you're transitioning to president. Just walk me through yeah. kind of what your responsibilities have been from uh, your playing days to the last few months to what they're going to be in the future now. 
Yeah, I, I think that the biggest difference for me in, in title is as I've been a co-founder with my brother and, and I was chief strategy officer first and then we shifted me over to CMO is we, we've been trying to tightrope me as, as a, an operator and strategist of the league while also playing in it. And the biggest part there was I had to recuse myself from any strategy or operations on game day. And that happens to be you know, something that I care a lot about and I think am uniquely fit to, to drive further vision and strategy around our game day ops. So now that the conflict of interest in playing and operating is off, uh, I've uh, enhanced my position uh, with the league, so to speak, and, and still oversee our, our media execution strategy and creative, but I'm now spending a lot more time on the cross product uh, and on field and strategy. Um, so expect me to you know, be at every game, working, developing players, um, thinking about new, new products, uh, new opportunities in the league. Um, and, uh, and that's where I'm drilling down. So we felt like, um, you know, positioning my title where I can run across different business units um, was best fit around president. Um, and as I said earlier, my brothers are uh, chairman and CEO, and I think we pack a pretty good one-two punch. Yeah, man, I'm excited. Uh, I, I I was thinking about it before our conversation that I asked this question on Twitter a while ago, maybe months at this point, and I said, hey, if you could invest in any professional sports league in the world right now, where would it be? Like if you could buy a team, do whatever. And not only were there more PLL answers than I think one might have expected, but there were significant people, investors, operators, and even a professional athlete uh, who's very well known that responded and said the PLL. So I think uh, you guys are making noise. Uh, it's a lot of fun to watch, and I'm excited to see how it goes in the future. Yeah. I appreciate you having me on. Um, Where can I send people do. to learn more about the PLL? They can go to premierlacrosseleague.com. Uh, follow us on Instagram at PLL. Follow us on Twitter at Premier Lacrosse. I'm still trying to figure out how we can get at PLL. Uh, that account has been uh, uh, sat on since 2007. So like early day. Um, Are you guys but, on TikTok uh, yet? Oh yeah. We're on TikTok at PLL, YouTube at, you know, at PLL. Um, so any social media platform, you can follow me on public. Uh, I'm a power user there on, on the public app. And, um, yeah, I think, um, your podcast too, doing, if you're not going to plug it, I will suiting up very good podcast. Yeah, that, appreciate that it. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm going to launch season four at the turn of the year and, and probably be out actually, uh, in the spring, but yeah, it's exciting time. It's a really exciting time to be a, a lacrosse player, certainly a professional lacrosse player, but if you're you know, a 14 year old playing lacrosse right now, you can look forward to continuing to have an opportunity at the next level with us, but in the Olympics in, in 2028, where uh, just last year we were given full membership by the IOC, which was the first time since the early 1900s. So lacrosse is, uh, is, is, uh, you know, kind of riding a nice tidal wave right now to shore and, uh, and we're going to continue the momentum. It's common, man. I like it. I'll, uh, I'll be watching. And thanks again for doing this. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me.